History is an exhaustible well of deep mystery, action, comedy, and tragedy to inspire and feed even the most fantastical RPGs. Arc Dream presents game designers Jeb Boyd, Alan Goodall, and Shane Ivey, who specialize in historical gaming, for tips on making it an easy and powerful resource. Good morning. Um, my, I'm Shane Ivey, and uh, I run a, a small publishing company called Arc Dream Publishing. We, uh, we are mainly known uh, these days for Delta Green, which is a modern-day horror game that's kind of set in as close to the real modern-day world as we can make it with Cthulhu's and Shabbat's and whatnot. Um, and you have your historical 60s period, 70s period. Yeah, yeah, we've we've uh, we've we've uh, we're work, we've worked with Pelgrane Press, our friends over there, who do Trail of Cthulhu with Knights Black Agents. They have a nineteen sixties, pardon me, nineteen sixties Delta Green game using their gumshoe rules. Um, and uh, we've also we did a, a series, an RPG series called Godlike, which was set in World War Two, and. Uh, and then we had a series called uh, Wild Talents, which was kind of a spin-off of Godlike that had um, uh, that had different settings, different world settings, and different eras uh, as well. And um, so, so I've got a, a on a personal level, um, I've been, I've run historical games for forever. I mean, that's that, that's my preferred thing is either something set in real world history, either straight or with some kind of a twist or settings that are really heavily inspired by real world history. So I've, I'm doing a, uh, I've been running Aces and Eights for 11, 12 years now off and on. Um, and I started off using their kind of built-in, they originally set that game in like a kind of alternate history Wild West. Um, and I've I gradually sort of evolved that into just running it as straight Western as I could because that's already fascinating enough, you know, once you start digging. Um, and so, uh, and that's kind of my main thesis, which is running games in history, whether it's an alternate history or you're just running it in straight up history, is, uh, is tremendously valuable and rewarding and the, all the resources that you need to make an RPG um, to make an RPG deep and surprising are right there available to you. There are literally libraries full of stuff to use. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's literally Wikipedia full of stuff yes, to use. Yes, that too. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and the great thing about it doing this as an RPG is you know, nobody's going to be fact checking you later. Um, so <laughs> So, uh, yeah. so uh, the, the best come online, Shane. The best part of like Godlike is the fact that it's superheroes in World War II. We we try to stay as close as possible to World War II, right. but if we deviate, eh, superheroes. Right. Yeah, well, my, I, I guess a mistake in superheroes. My my, my my point wasn't wasn't to do with with publishing because if you actually publish something, people will fact check you. But if you're just writing it at, at the table, <laughs> right, yeah, for yeah, you yeah, and your right. friends, right. then. Um, yeah. There's plenty of opportunities to just sort of fudge, and hardly anybody's going to notice. You know, I mean, if if your table is, has one or two, if you're running, if, I, if I'm running Godlike and I'm running a convention game, at a convention game because the audience is kind of self-selecting, there's almost always one or two like hardcore World War II people at the table who will know this stuff better than me. So 
that's, you know, that can be a challenge, but usually they're also there to have fun. So I can kind of get them on my side, you know, and make them a resource rather yeah. than Are you paying attention to my game lot yesterday. <laughs> no, no, no. I had somebody argue about the size of a of an eighty eight millimeter gun. Um, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> move. Yeah. yeah. So okay. Uh, so I've been speaking and speaking. So okay, Alan, introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Alan Goodall. Um, I primarily write for Art Green. Um, the my very first uh, published uh, setting was came about. From a kind of a, a question to to uh, to Shane, I asked, um, um, you know, I was asking on RPG Net about uh, various systems to build a an American Civil War setting around, and Shane, uh, one of them happened to be the Wild Talent setting because I had Godlike, and Shane said, "How serious are you about this?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to do it. It's just a matter of whether I do it, you know, with this setting or that setting." And he said, "How would you like it published?" <laughs> and that's how I got, got into it. That was my first uh, published uh, uh, piece. The next piece, uh, next thing I started doing was uh, working on Godlike, and uh, I've been the the primary developer, not the only one, but the primary developer for Godlike. And uh, most recently, I did the uh, the Silver Pavilion setting for Greg Stoltz's Reign, which is set in uh, the Ilmenbor period of uh, feudal Japan. Did, cool. you, did you do that with um, Hal in the recent Kickstarter? Yes, yes, that was, a, awesome. that was a stretch goal, and I was like watching his Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. I was <laughs> Okay, Jeff. So, uh, yeah, so my name is Jeff Boyt, and uh, I'm a game writer, a freelance game writer here in Austin. And um, I have, uh, well, I'm currently working on uh, a 1001 Nights setting for RuneQuest Historic Earth, set in the 10th century. Um, That's great. That uh, gives, laying down enough good solid historic base for the characters to go forth and tread the jewel thrones of the earth beneath their sandaled feet. Uh, And of course, adding in a lot of magic as well and gems. Is it going to be with Chaosium? Yes, it's chaosium. Sweet. And uh, and then, uh, but the main historical work I've produced, I've done previously, is I've done a lot of uh, pulp writing, uh, pulp era stuff for Adamant Entertainment in the Thrilling Tales line. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also done uh, related historical work, most recently with Modiphius and uh, in the Conan game. Of course, Robert E. Howard wrote Conan because he couldn't sell his historic fiction, so he, <laughs> he turned it into sword and sorcery instead. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I did a lot of work going back and looking at the historical pre- uh, precedents that he was relying on and uh, working through that. Which is great. So, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I, lo- I love doing that. I'm, I'm right now writing a, um, a series of D&D adventures that do exactly that. Like mm-hmm. that was my, my, what I wanted to do with them was sort of, I was interested in, in doing D&D adventures, but I was ma- mainly interested in sort of, in sort of fitting D and D isms and the mm-hmm. way the game works and the way the yeah. supernatural works in the game with historical the sort of historical mythologies and beliefs and antecedents that originally inspired it right yeah. so if you take um, um, wraiths for instance you know mm-hmm. you can kind of go back and look at where the belief in the wraith came from right. and what what cultures it came from that evolved mm-hmm. into what we see in D and D and um, once I started sort of digging in that it became just completely fascinating to me anyway yeah. well but, it's funny like actually I'm uh, working on a uh, adventure uh, for self-publishing uh, that's set in Heian Japan uh, in the north and uh, I was just 
I was it's an adaptation of Keep on the Borderlands, and like I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, this is gonna work. This is really gonna work. Right. Work very well. <laughs> and uh, but you know, then it's interesting, sort of like you know, back translate. How do you translate the D and D classes and structures and assumptions, all of the, the base assumptions, into historic uh, periods and settings? And uh, that is often the biggest challenge. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, right. Uh, so, so I guess. Um, I have I have a few specific eras that I was going to talk about and why they're interesting to me to work in historically and what that can say to people's other role playing games they're uh, they're working in. Um, what do you guys have in mind? Do you have specific things you wanted to bring up or go over? No, uh, maybe uh, maybe talk about some of the difficulties of particular settings, uh, particularly have uh, difficulties in research, mm-hmm. um, and also. Uh, uh, just some of the uh, trying to adapt to uh, trying to adapt a modern RPG audience to stuff that's happened in the past, which can be rather problematic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think and I think talking sometimes about uh, I like to talk a little bit about the uh, challenges sometimes in pitching and getting players interested um, mm-hmm. in your pitches and seeing the opportunities mm-hmm. in historic gaming. There are a lot of gamers who history sounds too much like schoolwork yeah. mm-hmm. or something and or that they don't think they can do the fantastic stuff they want to do uh, and so uh, how to work around how to work with that so I'd actually like to start with pardon me for chewing I'd like to start with um, kind of in that direction which is getting the players on board mm-hmm. right if you're if you're if you're a DM and you love reading about history you know you've already sold yourself so if you've got a table full of players then Presumably, you have some goodwill, and they'll put up with your weird idiosyncrasies to some extent. But it, it's going to be more fun if you get them invested. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, one of the one of the ways that I do that, and again, what you don't want to do is say, "Okay, um, here's my 20-page precis, right, of, right. of uh, or abstract." So, please right. read this before the next game session, right? And right. master it. Well, yeah, well, and, and come with your generated character ready to play. Yeah. Right, right. So the way you can kind of get around that, and and if you look at the the um, uh, player's handbook for fifth edition, mm-hmm. okay, I want to use that as an example. The player's handbook for fifth edition has. Um, not only does it describe all of the classes and the races, and it kind of describes each race and each class and its place in the assumed setting, right? Um, it also has the, the, that whole section on background features that you can generate bonds for your character, you can generate ideals for your character, all of those things. Generate backgrounds for your characters in the first place. Right, right. right. So, yeah, exactly. And all, you know, so, so you know, you could say, okay, my... Um, rogue before roguing was uh, an acolyte in some temple, right? So I've also got a couple of interesting acolyte skills. and um, But the value of that is all of those things tell the player, as the player is generating a character, things about the world that they're playing in, and they kind of evoke those details. So as the, as the game master, and you're, if you're trying to work in a historical setting, one way that you can sort of let the players into it without them feeling like they're being given work is you do some of that work ahead of time and create those elements that will give them hooks into the world and into the history that you're trying to give them just by playing that character, just by creating a character, right? Well, and exactly, in the, in the Hey in Japan 5th edition thing I'm looking at, 
exactly one of the things, first things I did was I went, I've gone through, and there's basically three big cultural groups mm -hmm. uh, that I'm looking at, and I said, like, well, these are the appropriate backgrounds for each cultural group. These are the appropriate classes. Mm -hmm. You know, and I say, like, you know, I'm not saying you can't play the other classes that aren't appropriate. I'm just saying, like, just recognize you're going to be going further afield mm -hmm. um, if you're doing that. And it's providing hooks or providing a framework for the players to, like, start to work within. Right. Uh, and their characters and seeing where they can go with it. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot also depends on the setting that you pick uh, and how easy it is, uh, how much of, a, of an understanding your players already have. Um, if you, for instance, if you decide, hey, I want to do something in the, the War of the Roses, and uh, uh, the problem you run into that is people have kind of a vague idea of what medieval Europe looked like, and the if, if you say War of the uh, well, I know what I mean by War of the Roses. Some are going to think, oh, we are running around in chainmail, and others are going to go, no, no, that's actually the two, three hundred years before that. Mm -hmm. So you that gets kind of problematic. You have to work a little harder to get your. Uh, players into uh, into this into the setting. I had a uh, I had a player who wanted to play a gambling rogue in 17th century France who had more guns than a 19th century gambler would have. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny that yeah. you mentioned 19th century because the most recent thing I've been doing is uh, uh, we had talked years and years about uh, years and years ago about doing a sequel to This Favorite Land mm -hmm. uh, set in um, in the Wild West, mm -hmm. uh, the Old West. And I've been working on this, so I've got the uh, 19th century supers came, mm -hmm. trying hard not to make it look like every other weird West thing that's happened. And that was really easy to pitch. I said, yeah, you're, uh, you're super powered, uh, but um, you're trying to, uh, you're trying to you know, get away from standard, uh, from the, the regular uh, population, because the problem is that they all see you as witchcraft, um, and you're moving out West. And oh, by the way, that they're now you're having to deal with the fact that the native population has now developed these powers too, and how is this all interreacting? Mm -hmm. Everybody immediately took to it. In fact, two of the characters picked Native American characters, which mm -hmm. was awesome because they did a really good job of it. Mm -hmm. um, one of which was uh, was partly Native, and uh, he he was like, yeah, I'm all over this. So yeah. that was really easy to to grab in. Um, on the other hand, Onan War Japan was a little bit more of a a little harder pitch. <laughs> well, and, and another another thing I think you can do to help the players if they're not, you know, just as invested in, in the time period that you want to explore as you are, is remember that characters on the ground don't know all that much about their world either, right? right. So you don't need to tell teach your players everything about the world they're in. You need to teach them kind of just enough for their characters with their backgrounds to navigate the world that they're used to, right? And that's actually a much, much narrower and easier um, subset of information to convey. And there's two uh, sort of key elements in there as well about that too. And one is that, first off, is like, help identify what excites you about the setting. Mm -hmm. What really interests you? What are the opportunities? What do you want to explore? <clears throat> And get your play and work with your players and see if they agree with you on that, or you know, mm -hmm. you know and uh, as best you can. And then the uh, and and you the, can focus your things about your character background, characters backgrounds, character the things that you focus that you're exactly. sort of letting the players learn without having to teach them right didactically. Right, right? you can yeah. fo that's another way to focus that so that it's not 
it doesn't feel too <clears throat> to feel overwhelming to you or to the players. Right, and the other thing is that you know so much of players think like, well, it's history, so it's fixed mm. and it's already known. It's like, well, no, not necessarily, because there's like broad stretches of history where like we may know one specific thing, but there's a whole lot of stuff we don't know. Sure. Right, and that's of course assuming that what we know is accurate, right? You know, or true, which, which, which it which it hardly ever is. Right. I mean, uh, so so um, so like I said earlier, I've, I've, I I love running uh, a Wild West campaign that's set in the historical West. Okay. Yeah. And one of the reasons I love doing that, there's a lot of reasons I love doing that. One of the one of the big reasons I love doing that is the things that everybody knows about the West are not very close to anything that actually happened in the West. Um, so the, um, the, the, you know, the, there's the gunfight at the OK Corral, right? Everybody knows, you know, everybody who's remotely interested in West, in the history of the American West knows about the gunfight at the OK Corral. It's exhaustively studied, and yet every year people are digging up new correspondences, new letters, new things that, um, you know, that kind of turn details over as to the motivations of what happened, the details of what happened. And so you can have half a dozen different versions of what happened in that extraordinarily famous event, right? Um, and as the DM, if let's say you wanted to feature that event in your game and the player characters are involved somehow, you can pick and choose which version you're interested in and best case scenario, surprise them, right? So mm -hmm. if it's if it's kind of old hat to you that Wyatt Earp was this great stand-up paladin-like hero, um, then there's plenty of evidence that Wyatt Earp was a hothead. And, you know, at the time he was like 30 years old. He was young, you know, and um, was a hothead who was just spoiling for a fight. And his older brother, who was the experienced lawman, was trying to keep the peace and kind of keep the, you know, mm -hmm. and, and dealing with these competing mm -hmm. forces of, of, town, of town leaders who wanted them to stomp all over the, the, the rustic cowboys who were coming in and causing trouble. And, you know, so you've got all these things going on that you could easily turn that extremely famous, well-known thing into something new and surprising and suspenseful. Hmm. Um, the, uh, you know, so, uh, I mean, another reason, to, I'll, let me, I'll continue using Westerns as an example, which you don't have to give a flip about Westerns, but, but you can kind of apply these, these principles to, to any setting that you're interested in presenting at the table. Um, you know, like I said, you've got, if, if you have a, if you have a setting that has famous characters that interest you, then that's a great resource that you can draw on and bring them in, you know, the, 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 um, the, 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 big, the big warning I'll give on doing that is don't let your fascination with those characters overshadow the actual protagonists at your table, which are right. the players. Right, characters. and that's, that's true whether you're playing in the Forgotten Realms or exactly. the Wild West exactly. or anywhere else. Yes. I mean, you, 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 you don't, yeah. don't, or, or Star Wars, There's yeah. the, the classic example. It's like, you know, whatever one always says. So no, you gotta like, yeah. your characters, they gotta be the heroes and the focus of the game exactly. at your table. So, so if you're bringing in really well-known historical figures, right, then you're bringing them either, bringing them in as foils or as sources of motivation or, um, you know, or, uh, or what have you. But I, re I recommend doing your best to kind of make them as human and flawed and troublesome as every other human being in the world, right? 
um, and make them a source of the kind of conflicts and things that'll that'll nudge your players into taking action and into doing doing what they they want in the world. There's a there's also a corollary to that, which is regarding details in your historical setting to begin with. You're going to know more than your players quite often because you're the one that's brought it to the table and said, "Hey, I really want to play in this setting." Your players, if your if your players are uh, like-minded, you've got no problem whatsoever. You'll talk. Uh, well, actually, the problem you'll have is you'll end up talking historical details instead of role playing. Uh, but the uh, uh, a lot of your players are kind of like, yeah, that's an interesting setting, but they don't know the details and they don't care. Mm -hmm. They don't want all those little things. They don't really need to know the exact weight of uh, of a particular firearm in, in Wild right, West. Right. They don't need to know exactly which regiment fought at this. What, what they're going to care about is their characters, exactly. Right. So you keep right. the focus on the protagonists. I mean, just like if you're, you know, if you were writing a novel, set in the West, and your protagonist started off as, you know, um, as, a, you know, Janie Wilson, that who's a character you invented, and then you spend the first two chapters talking about Wild Bill Hickok, right? Without getting to Janie Wilson, then yeah. it's going to feel really confused, and and mm -hmm. and the the narrative's going to feel weak. Um, and even more so at the table, your players are going to feel like, well, we're just, why are we just playing the Wild Bill Hickok game? I'm exactly. just yeah. playing my character. Right. But right. Knowing, knowing the extra detail yourself is important because what's going to happen is your players are going to do, at, like always, they're going to do something you weren't expecting. And mm -hmm. by knowing what the overall uh, political situation mm -hmm. or military situation or whichever, mm -hmm. knowing all that, knowing mm -hmm. how the, uh, the, per the actual personality of the herbs and, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. and whatnot allows you to react to that really well. But it's, it takes a little bit of an act to make sure you don't get that detail soaking down to the players mm -hmm. to the point where they don't want to play anymore because you just it feels like a history lesson. Right, right. You, keep, you have to keep the focus on their characters and yes. what their characters are doing and use all the stuff that you have in your head as a resource, right, to bring to bear, to right. make the world feel lived in and to make it feel deep um, so that it feels meaningful for the players, right? It's always one of the most important things for any GM to do is to listen to your players and sure. like see what they're responding to, see yeah. what they're interested in. Yeah, you're there in. to have fun for them to have fun. Exactly. Not just, not just you. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so another reason that I love West, working in, the, in real world history, so using Western as an example again, is that the, um, there, there's always, always resources for settings that, can, that will surprise you and that will help you create details that'll surprise the players, right? And that surprise helps them feel, you know, feel kind of, uh, helps them have fun in the world that you're, that you're presenting to them. Um, and, and you can basically just, if you call up Google Earth or whatever, right? You can, mm -hmm. if, you, if you kind of have an idea of where you're setting the, the, the events, the action, whatever, the era, you know, pick a random point on the map, wherever you happen to be, and somewhere near there, there's almost certainly going to be something really fascinating and weird that was that was going on that's in history that you can use as a hook. Oh, yeah. But so, we, we should not move away from Google Earth, though, too, as a resource. Because I tell you, while working on my 
you know, Heian era Japan yeah. uh, setting, one of the first things I did was like, okay, so what does this area of Japan look like today? Oh, Where right. is this Physically, castle it's changed. actually yeah. looking? No, no, but actually, you, but you go in under Google Earth and like zoom in and go in satellite view. You can see what the terrain looks like. Mm-hmm. You can see like, oh, well, this castle is over here on this side of the river, and this castle is over here on this side of the river, and they commanded the valley, and, you know, and... What is this massive volcano with a crater lake up here? Just like, that's got to be an interesting factor, you know, somewhere in there. So you can pick up these different elements, and and even, you know, in that thing, even though I, you know, going and looking at twenty, you know, twenty first century travel guides to visiting northern Japan gives me ideas and resources about places that I can then, you know, go back and you and provide context for a historical game. Mm-hmm. I've yeah. used I've used Google Earth extensively with Godlike, um, sure. yeah. and in fact, I uncovered uh, uh, an error in a book. <laughs> there was uh, it, for the Ortona uh, uh, Courtyard of Hell book uh, set in the uh, Italian town of Cor- uh, Ortona. I actually got down on Google Earth and right down uh, at Street View, and, uh, and the old street is still there, and you can see how uh, you can actually see the elevation. Mm-hmm. And one uh, one element, uh, one book I read said that there was like an anti-tank gun mounted here, but there was supposed to be a mound of debris blocking the street that was in places 25 feet high. And I said, it can't be 25 feet high here because they couldn't have hit the tank over here because mm-hmm. he would have had this big mound. And that just like, the big light went off and I went, whoa, it must have been way lower than this book kind of implies. Uh, mm-hmm. Which of course I made use of in the, in the battle itself, but just going into something and seeing where the fighting happened and, mm-hmm. or seeing where mm-hmm. uh, historical events happened. Um, I took a tour of, uh, of Scotland in 92 and went through a whole bunch of castles and, and whatnot. And just being able to see that ground where the history happens mm-hmm. is, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, it really impl- it really helps your, your game move along, Kind of evoke details and yeah. tone and atmosphere. Yeah. And, yeah. and in ways that, that, again, kind of are useful to your players. You don't have to, like the, the, that whole thing you went over there, you can present that at the table. You don't have to tell them how you discovered all that. Exactly. Right. right. As in, I mean, as interesting as that is to me, like because I love research, but at the table, that's a that's a that's a that's a that's an asset that you're bringing in to make it challenging and interesting to the players. And even if you're not doing a historical game, if you're doing like a standard medieval or fantasy type game, I really suggest that you get in Google Earth and go into some of the bigger castles in, in England, Scotland, France. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go there and take the street view because they've now got it. So, people are now going into these things with backpacks with uh, the Google uh, mm-hmm. the Google Earth camera mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. the backpack, so that you can now walk through castles that somebody else has gone through. And you go do that, and you go. Well, how big was a medieval castle? They're not that big. <laughs> well, and, and one interesting thing I've noticed here is I create. I started creating a Pinterest page of just some castles, and like it's really it's kind of focusing on distinctive castles, and often like how so many castles are shaped to the terrain. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Exactly. And yeah. like you. So whereas like in role playing games, we we love our our ten by ten foot grids. Right. And. You know, we, you know, castles are all traditionally you got your four corners and like the space is as flat as this table. It's like no, that's really not how you know most of them are or were. And so and, and that kind of that, that kind of sort so. of organicness um, is again something that you can bring in to surprise players, yes. right? Yes. And, and keep it keep things keep the keep the details 
fresh and and, and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the uh, the thing about settings, one of the one thing that I had a great time with in my last days as an Atron was um, there, there there was a moment where, where a couple of the car- the players had split off in the main group and they were traveling north out of Texas, you know, into a uh, what would eventually be Oklahoma, you know, they were heading north. And, um, and so I kind of figured, you know, I knew more or less where the, you know, the, what kinds of roads they were interested in following. And, um, and I just kind of poked around and looked at, okay, they want to get to where the train line is. So I just dug up because, you know, I'm nuts for this stuff. I spent all kinds of time digging up old maps of the era and then mm-hmm. with it had, that showed where the, you know, where the, the, the trains, the train lines were being built. Um, and all of those contradict each other, you know. So, you, so, uh, you know, we're on the Chisholm Trail right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, no, this is, in fact, in fact, this is a really wonderful story about there's a school teacher here in Round Rock mm-hmm. who uh, built a herd of cattle just by collecting sick or calves who were too young to tr- make the draw to go do the drives <laughs> up to Kansas because mm-hmm. most of the, mm-hmm. a lot of the, ca- the cattle came from south of here mm-hmm. and the, then they were all sort of like gathered here and then and began head, heading up north and like but she collected all these cattle mm-hmm. and she was just a school teacher and but she collected all these calves and built a herd and built a big ranch so, yeah, yeah that's yeah that's that's fun um and uh yeah so I mean that's you know I wouldn't have thought to put that in a right. in a setting, you know. <laughs> right. And that's a great character you can bring into play. Oh, and you dig into history, and there yeah. are all yeah. kinds of interesting, so, surprising. Yeah, exactly. So the so I was looking for sort of a lo- an, a, 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 lo- a weird location to 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 stage an encounter, right? Um, uh, and uh, and so I was looking at the maps, you know, at the maps, and and I saw a little. There was like a, a, a town labeled on the road that they were that they that I knew the, the players wanted to go on in between sessions. I was doing this 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 poking around, and there was a town, and it was called Boggy Depot. And I just <laughs> yeah, I just thought that was funny. I just thought that was a funny name. So I was like, that's that's got to be something. Right. So I started looking into it, and the more I dug, the more fun it became. Right. Because this is a town that I mean it within about. 10, I think 10 or 15 years of the 1871 when I, or 70 when I was, when this was happening, the town had moved miles away because the train came in and like mm-hmm. so many towns of the era, once the train line landed here instead of here, this town, that evaporated. was the place to be. So, right. yeah, so, 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 but so Boggy Depot was, um, was a like staging point. That's why it was called a depot. It was a staging point for, for, uh, for, uh, transport. You know, and um, through the territory, but it was a Cherokee town, and it was well known. And this, there were tons of sources. I mean, not you know, you know what I mean. There were primary sources that described people going through it and what it was like. And everything that was describing it was it was this Cherokee town, but the Cherokee had come out of the 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 deeper South, and um, in this community especially, uh, they basically built this town of Boggy Depot to be as close to sort of a rich, impressive looking antebellum southern town as they could manage, right? So the governor the the the, 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 right. the sort of the leading figure of the town who later would become a you know a governor of the territory. Uh, I don't remember his name, I wish I did, but you know, he had a lot of money. But so yeah. he so his house was like 
this big classic antebellum looking mansion, you know, with the well, white, I mean, the you know, white a lot of the Cherokees, and, I mean, the land, the, the land fights in the South that, right. that results in the Trail of Tears, I mean, so a lot of the Cherokees were very wealthy and they, right. you know, they, they had plantations, they had slaves. And, yeah, and so, and so that's, so, yeah, that's the so thing, that's is he kind of ran a plantation, not with right. slaves, but right, he had right, right. But you had field them, workers and everything. And, yeah. So, um, and, you know, in the, the town, it wasn't a big town, but it was, there was like a, there was a, a, a a hotel with a restaurant in it that was owned by Colonel something or other, and you know who was who became a colonel in the Civil War, and um, and uh, you know so I started I, I got really curious knowing how player characters are I figured they were going to get in trouble so I was like okay what does policing look like here so I dug around and and in that part of the country the uh, sort of law enforcement among the Native American populations was done by, by what they call the light horse, which were, you know, essentially roving marshals who would, um, you know, but, but the laws, the federal laws that govern everybody in the territories were really, really specific. So on, the light horse was Bureau of Indian Affairs people or? No, they were the, tribal. The tribal police. Right, okay. right. Okay. So, um, you know, so so what that meant is that there was going to be, you know, I, I said, okay, great. So I'll just make up a, a you know, a light horse, a light horse uh, captain, you know, and 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 have him be there because this is a town that already, even though I'd never heard of it before ten minutes ago, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I discovered it had prominent, you know, prominent people uh, of the territory, and. Um, and uh, and so I sort of dug around in what are the what are the laws that apply here that are going to affect the players coming in and all of this didn't take a great deal of time right um, but but the but the laws at the time were very race specific um, and so the you know the light horse were responsible for dealing with the tribes but they didn't have any jurisdiction over people outside the tribes right so well, that that carries through to the modern day. Right, right. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, You're you're absolutely right. And and um, so so uh, so that that told me that having the player characters, you know, who um, you know who had uh, who were sort of you know white cowboys, not Mm -hmm. making a decision of mine, but that's Mm -hmm. you know that's what the players made up, um, who were heading north and they were going to encounter people that had a grudge against them because they'd shot some of their friends. You know, those were both groups that were coming into town who were not under the direct jurisdiction, right, of the white horse. Uh-huh. And so, um, anyway, so all of this made, you know, like, this was not a great deal of work, mm-hmm. right? But it's tons of these interesting little wrinkles and details that mm-hmm. meant that just having the players coming up, coming north, and and some of their unknown until then rivals coming south mm-hmm. across paths with well, them. what a great setup and then you yeah. have, and so you have a you know a, a, your light horse captain right. who is the law in town but he doesn't have right. all as much authority over these folks right. he, that's a really wonderful yeah, complex yeah. three way um, yeah exactly so, exactly wow. yeah so so when the players came into town you know they, they one of the players made a point I I had them come into town first and one of them made a point of you know he had he was like this, uh, the character was this super obnoxious young, you know, cowboy type who had, he wasn't really aggressive or always trying to get into fights, but he annoyed people so much that he was always getting into fights and he became really famous as a gunfighter um, and, and he was really, really dangerous, but uh, but he tended to be really friendly and he'd done some law, so he, so he introduced himself to the to this light horse captain, and they kind of became buddies over a couple of hours before the other gang came into town, mm-hmm. right? So, 
when inevitably he got a fight picked, then you know, then I sort of spun it that the that the the light horse Captain Johnson, um, you know, kind of took his side, even right. though technically, officially, it would he would have been better served to just stay out of it entirely, right? You know, um, and anyway, so there was, so there's there's just like all kinds of those fun details that you can generate really quickly, and all of that is in the real world, right? And all of that is things that. That make that made that encounter memorable and, and great for the players. You know, even even though the characters are split up, the other players were spectators at this point, right? For I was going back and forth between their scenes, but um, but they loved it. They thought it, they thought it was sort of alternately hilarious, and the fact that you had so many deep details in there that I didn't have to invent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I just wrote them down. Have you come across the Sanford insurance maps? No. Oh, oh my, my God! No, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Um, University of Texas, Sanford with Sanford, I think with a D S A N D F O R. S A N. Yeah. University of Texas has a, a beautiful collection. Of right. Uh, yeah, the Castaneda was, Map Library has a ton of great maps online. Yeah, oh, yeah. Casta- yeah, yeah, it's all online. So what? Yeah, they're, uh, look, let's say that. Say that more clearly, just in case anybody's okay, curious. The, the Sanford, uh, the Sanford insurance maps. What yep. happened was in the 18th century, insurance companies were going through and saying, well, uh, people want to insure their, their buildings in these towns. And an insurance company would quite often uh, cover like most of the town. So they would send inspectors into town and they would map out the, ta- the town. And what they would do is they would draw uh, survey maps of all the buildings in the town. but. The detail that they're after is insurance details. So sure. they want to know what was the structure made of? Yeah. Was it wood? Was it uh, brick? Uh, what was the roof like? I've, I've seen and I've seen and other structures. Yeah, I've seen I've seen Where things like that water? for uh, <laughs> Where the water? Water yeah, for San Francisco as well. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And right. they've done right. it for almost all any any well, even some minor towns, but mm-hmm. any major town in Texas, they've got covered. Yeah. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. so, and and in many cases, they have multiple maps for different years. So I found one for 1870, 1880, 1885. Right. And you can see how the town grew. And plus, you get to see uh, where everything's located. Um, in one case, I couldn't find where they had the jail. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out the jail hadn't been built at that point, right. but they built the jail. It was way over here, out of yeah. town. Yeah. Right. And every movie I've ever seen, the jail's like in right. yeah. the middle it's, of downtown. It's behind yeah, the it's on the other side yeah. of the train tracks away. You don't want yeah. riffraff in the middle of your town. Right. Right. It was just a fascinating, uh, yeah. fascinating I, I found a de- uh, there was a detail like that when I'm in the same campaign. One of my characters had been arrested and was, you know, before the trial was put in jail. It, you know, it was, it, he was arrested in Fort Concho. And you know, I kind of did a little bit of digging to see what happens if you're arrested in Fort Concho in 1870, and mm-hmm. and they would have had to you know move him down to um, I don't remember if it was Austin or, or Houston. It might have been Austin, San Antonio, or yeah, I don't remember which town. But the, but but you know, so so you know, the, so I sort of played it out that okay, he was going to get transported, so his buddy rode along with him just to make sure he was okay, and uh, and um, so I got curious, what's the what's the uh, Right, what's the jail look like? You know, right. where is he going to be spending the two weeks it's going to take for the circuit judge to come around? And, um, and, uh, and, the, uh, and yeah, like, the, like you said, like the, the jails changed over time, and the one that was there at that time, um, was, it was part of sort of a big uh, uh, government building, but the descriptions of it were fascinating. Like it was, they said that it was, um, 
that it was uh, it was the jail part was really small. It was described as having been built with the word that the that they used in the in the um, like in the uh, there I found a, a the the pricing thing for it. You know where they budgeted it. The proposal uh, was dungeon flagstones, and um, and uh, you know and 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 sort of and I was able to find really quickly that the the sort of the way it worked. It was very small, and because this was you know. Cowtown era, right? So, so you know, whenever whenever there were like herds coming through, there were going to be people that were stirring up trouble, and so there were period there were periods every year where it was full of people, you know, full of guys that had been arrested, and it was just sweltering and horrible and miserable, and people called it the black hole of Calcutta whenever they were in it, <laughs> and. Um, you know, but then they would get, you know, they would get processed and handled and it would empty out again, you know. And so, and this is all stuff you can find really easily if you're curious, right? And so, um, and I, so, so presenting that at the table was, you know, it was, it was just a couple of minutes, yeah, right? Well, but it and, added and details and I was able to sort of describe, okay, you get put in this thing and there's like two dozen guys in a 20 by 20 room, you yeah. know, of, of dungeon flagstones right. and um, you're just covered up and it's horrible and miserable and, you know, then, then after a couple of days, most of them leave, and you're left with you and a homeless, you know, like a bum, you know, and a uh, um, and this other prisoner who's likely to get hanged, and he's completely right. psychopathic and is trying to trying to get you on board for a jailbreak attempt. Right. So um, I mean, and that's a great example. You talk about visiting castles. So like, if you're in the Austin or Central Texas area, I mean, Fort Concho is a day trip. <laughs> you right. go to Fort right, Concho, right. and you could drive the route down yeah. to San Antonio, where the character would be transported. If you really want to, like, you know, get a sense of like, see what the area is like. Right. So. Right. Um, uh, and and again, if you're not if you're not local, local, if you're not local, if you're you've, not got, local, Google, you've yeah. got Google, Google Maps, yeah. Google Earth, and you can actually dig down and street find view. it. And street view, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, in a lot of locations. So, um, yeah. you know, th there's uh, other things that the um, uh, earlier I was talking about uh, uh, in, uh, involving famous historical figures, right? So I mentioned Wild Bill Hickok. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody knows Wild Bill Hickok. You know, if you watch Deadwood, the first four episodes of Deadwood, you know, it was uh, was it David Carradine that played him. Anyway, amazing, amazing portrayal of him. In uh, and um, but you know things that like there's historical features of that person at that time. You know, let's say you're doing something in Deadwood in 1876. So while Bill Hickok was famous as a gunman, he had killed all kinds of people in gunfights. Um, but by 1876, the last time that he was reported of having shot anybody had been four years before that so he had this really violent career up mm. until 72 and then nothing from 72 to 76 right so he's had four years of this the, the most famous gunman in the world not shooting people um which i mean that's a good thing right yeah. you don't want to shoot yeah. but, but anyway but but that's an interesting twist for a character who's only known for shooting people right mm -hmm. so digging around in there by 1872 I mean, he was a wreck, right? And he, I mean, he had syphilis, and his mm. eyes were going. He could barely mm. see anything. Um, but the main thing was 18, what happened in 1872 was uh, he was marshal. I think it was in Abilene, and um, he had a shootout, as he was wont to do, right, with somebody that was mad at him, probably for shooting other people. And um, but in the course of that, he accidentally shot. A, his, a friend of his who was acting as his deputy and mm. his backup and killed him. Mm. And um, 
you know, and so after that, like, he's not on record as, as there's not interviews with him where he says, oh my gosh, I was so heartbroken, you know, but right, then right. again, nobody said that. Right, right, loud, he's not right? going to admit he has PTSD or right. grief or yeah, anything exactly. like that, but exactly. it's all there. So, and yeah. I mean, this is a figure who's always got people hassling him, right, so he's right. not going to show weakness at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so if I'm going to involve... I'll be Hickok when I return to my campaign. You know, the characters are in Wyoming, right? It's in, in 18, early 18, early mid-1870s. So he would be a fascinating character to bring in, but I can bring in a version of Wild Bill Hickok that's both really familiar and totally unfamiliar, you know? And by bringing in all those details, I can evoke things about the setting and the, the world that the players are in in an organic way without having to teach them. Right about it without having to, to, to show them things didactically. Um, yeah. Ancient myth and mysticism seen through the lens of fifth edition. Superpowered commandos in the carnage of World War II. The Wild West in all its adventure and atrocity. Get historical adventures for your tabletop games at the Arc Dream Publishing Patreon account. Join us today at patreon.com slash shaneivy. Cool. You know, uh, we got like a little more than 15 minutes left, so maybe we should ask to see if people have questions. Sure. Sure. Anybody have challenges or things you've dealt with or been curious about? No? I haven't done any historical gaming, really, but Uh I can imagine one of the challenges being to take those details and like evoke the individuality of whatever culture or setting you're in and not having... Any like practical tips or techniques for getting that proper atmosphere out of a unique culture or setting? Oh yeah, I mean, I think mm-hmm. I think pick and choose the details. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So so I what I guess I guess the, really what I'm saying is decide ahead of time, big picture. What are the one or two or three elements of the setting that you want to evoke, and then key in on details that do that, right? So. I'm I'm personally I'm fascinated with the sort with uh, with uh, with like medical issues historically you know and and historical medicine and all of the things that made life so challenging and miserable you know um, and uh, so if I wanted to if I wanted to kind of evoke that in a Western game where most of the Western genre I mean the getting away even aside from the politics of it which are which are interesting and problematic in and of itself but just getting away from the western genre which is which is sort of it's the reason it's it's useful for gaming is most of the western genre is kind of its own kind of power fantasy right where it's about these figures who have the you know by dint of the their own native strength and violence affect the world and make it better right mm-hmm. and that's that ties in great with D&D so um but I, I love to sort of flip that around. So bringing in a character like Wild Bill in that game, who's got syphilis and is physically a wreck and psychologically a wreck, right? If I'm if I'm interested in portraying that world and that setting, not just as how awesome and fun is it to have gunfights, but what are the downsides that are going to challenge you? Then that's a way that I would do that. Is I would sort of embody those in a character that is dealing with those issues, so that when the players run against him, they experience that secondhand, and then later, if they experience any of it firsthand, it won't come out of nowhere. Well, and I would say. You, you, you have to pick and choose your details because it's really easy to go overboard. 
Yeah. Right? And as you know, reading box text from anything, it gets dull really yep. fast. And so pick an, pick an idea and elements and features that reinforce the idea of the setting. You know, your saloon, you, whether it's the, the barkeeper, the door, whatever, the, the painting behind it, take your pick. But then also come up with some authentic detail that subverts the conventional image, that's contrary to it, like the syphilitic, really emphasizing you know, the syphilitic uh, Wild Hill Hickok, or having somebody in the bar who's not wearing a cowboy hat, that's wearing a bowler hat or something else. And, you know, there are different things you can, you know, work your way in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I like to take the... Uh stereotypical view uh, that people have and find where it's wrong. Uh, one of the one of the great ones is Bushido. Right. Um, everybody gets this idea that you know Japanese were incredibly honorable when they were fighting. And uh, when I first came across this case where uh, they set fire to a, bu a bunch of samurai were in a uh, in a barn sleeping, well the other guys set fire to it, and as they came out they hit them with uh, with arrows. And this was considered Honorable because we killed the bad guys. <laughs> right, right, right. And they, you, you if they, if they, if they didn't want detail. that, they should have been sleeping there. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. And so you take that detail and you go, whoa, that's not what I see when I watch Kurosawa. Right, right, no, it's right, not. Right. And that's so take those kind of weird things and throw the characters at it. And I guarantee they, they will, will go, what? <laughs> and, yeah. But they'll enjoy it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you guys have any stories with like dealing, especially with like that, of like introducing the players to culture shock? Because we are playing Night Witches, which mm. is set in Soviet Union uh, yeah. too, mm -hmm. and I think I was the only player who came in knowing anything about that era. Yeah. Oh, so when wow. our GM just executed three people, the NPCs we met as a matter of course, right. several of them were like. So, 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 what do you? I'm, I'm curious. What you're most interested in, like helping the players cope with it, yeah, or like cope with it, or like, or even uh, get them on board with kind of, especially like Bushido in Japan, yeah. of like. Hey, this is maybe what you think from the movies, but that's not how. I would especially think if you're doing like a Mongol setting. Sure. Like they were yeah. really brutal. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Horrifying. Yeah. Well, I, so, mean, I mean, the classic thing is just like, you know, all the NPCs just like look at you and go say, what? Yeah. You know, this right. is how it is. Right. You know, yeah. This right. is what yeah. there is. Yeah. So, yeah, you, know, you expect something different. This is what it's, there is. Yes, so, yes, yeah. it, yes, it's sad, but what right. can you expect? Right. Well, what do you, have, what, right. have you run into that at the table since you're the one doing all the research and you're putting that in front of the people? Yeah, I've, I've run into that uh, uh, a couple of times. Um, basically, the, the easiest way to do it is pretty much what, uh, what uh, you just encountered, which is yeah, just throw it out. <laughs> uh, pick, uh, set up a, a scenario where they will view that kind of thing. Okay. Um, not necessarily, you don't want to embroil them in it because they're going to come in mm -hmm. being very stereotypical and it's real easy for the next thing to happen that they're, they're on a scaffold about to be hanged. Uh, you, don't want to, you don't want to do that sort of thing. What you do want to do is have them come into a situation where they view this culture shock and then maybe they've got to make a decision. Do I try to stop it? Do I just hang back? Do I join in? Mm -hmm. um, and in many cases, they'll get kind of pa uh, pas uh, uh, pacifistic or passive, sorry. They'll get better the passive and watch what's happening. Mm -hmm. And you just look for the shock and then make a note of that and then run with that later in the, uh, in the scenario. Yeah, and if you can have, if, if, you're, if you're sort of savvy enough to be paying attention to, like you've got your key NPCs who 
are observing the player characters just as the player characters are observing everything else. So once the, the players sort of have their reaction to what's happening, then you can bring that up later, right? And have, you know, so if one of the players is expressing, you know, extreme moral indignation, right? Then in Night Witches, for example, that's not a great idea, you know, because there are all kinds of people around them who are desperate to survive on their own, and so they might key in on that character's, what you know, uh, um, uh, susceptibility to expressing outrage as a thing that they can take advantage of, you know. So if you're the GM, then that's something you can throw at people, and boom, instant conflict with huge stakes. Authority well, it, figures are good. Uh, yeah. For instance, yeah. Uh, you. Um, the number, the you hear a lot about in, in Japan about suicide for failure, um, or the battle's going bad and you you know they all start committing suicide. Well, very often what happened was the their their lord would say, "No, <laughs> I need somebody to retreat and get some reinforcements and prepare our next castle. I don't want you to die, right. and so stop it." So when the characters are starting to react in a particular way, you have an authority figure coming in. So, what are you doing? No, no, leave or you know subvert that whole uh, that whole. Or, you, or, or their or their authority figure might be the one who failed and is talking about killing himself. Yeah. So, and, the, and it's and it's on the players right, to exactly. give us some. No, right. that would destroy all of us. So. Yeah, or it's like, like you know, yes, things have turned out really, really bad for I'm, me as the authority figure. Here I'm going to do this. Here's my death poem, but you need to take my head back to my wife. Yes, like, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and, which is that's the way it goes. So uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I mean, so yeah. I think I I agree with what Alan said. You know, like, like it's just expose the players to what's going to surprise them, and, and then let them react. And another thing, as as in all games, it's very important to like know your players and to know the players that are that you can particularly work with at the table. So. Because you know some, because some play, you know, not all your players can react the same way to that that situation and scene. So, if you can, you know, either sort of pre-soak other play, you know, the players who know better or work with them uh, in a way to uh, uh, to help the, the help work with the other players to you know understand and establish the context. It, it's something where you were talking it reminded me. So in my pulp New Orleans game, so this is nineteen thirty. 30s, late, uh, mid late 30s uh, New Orleans, um, I had a character who he was playing a black lesbian who was both passing as white and passing as a man. So this became a, a long thing. He wasn't really out to the players, uh, to, or to the characters, the, the other characters in the game, and, and he wasn't entirely out to the players either uh, in keeping this quiet. So that was one of the ways we dealt with the racism in the setting was by showing you know he him trying to like work around and uh, and cope within it in that, in that way so. that's actually one of the, the harder aspects to handle in historical uh, role playing is the, the problematic uh, oh yeah uh, the really problematic uh, uh, social interactions yeah um, in our uh, our super western game uh, one of the uh, one of the natives, of course, and he's super powered. So once his once his gift shows up, um, the way the the whites in town react to him completely different. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, how do you do that so that a it's not offensive to the mm -hmm. players, not offensive to the culture, and right. yet still be kind of close to like at least fairly uh, fairly 
authentic. Right. And that's right. that's a really tight time. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Tight yeah, you're absolutely well, right. Well, and with um, that with that knowing knowing yeah. your knowing your players and knowing yourself is absolutely right. the key. Well, uh, if you if you're going to you know, it, I think I think in gay, it, it's sort of exploring that really difficult space. I think is important. Mm-hmm. Right. But because I think it's important, I think it's important to also do it in a way that's respectful and right. that is not exploitative. Um, I mean, you know, if I'm running a game in the West because I'm interested in actual history, there is no getting around the awful role of racism in the West and in the Western as a fiction as a genre of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because I like westerns, I also want to sort of see what they say about the characters and the world that the characters are in. But it's really crucial, you know, and it goes for sexism as well, oh, yeah. right? I mean, oh, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. you know, my, uh, I mean, half of my group is, is is women, you know, of the players, and they, you know, usually play female characters. And so, when you're, you know, in a Western game, even the white women aren't allowed in the same bar as the as the white men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, unless it's a particularly shady bar or they're especially shady characters, and um, and so uh, so so it's kind of crucial to make sure that your players are such that bringing bringing up those issues you know if you've got one player who uh rejoices in being callous and being kind of a dick about things then bringing up those issues might get really ugly at the table really fast right um so you have to kind of know what you're getting into so that you can get into issues in a way that's useful and um, and valuable and dramatic, you know, and heartbreaking, even without it being, you know, a, 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 a way to genuinely hurt people. Because the you're, you know, people are. As I'm, I'm a middle-aged white American man, right? Yeah. I've got all the edges in the world, everything in the world working in my favor. Yeah. Um, so it's really easy for me to not think about issues that genuinely affect people right now you know right. and you're exploring stuff in, in American history especially um, that these are issues that genuinely affect and, and are harmful to people in your life right oh, yeah. so you want to oh, kind yeah. of pay attention to that and make yeah. sure that you're doing that you're exploring these issues in a way that makes them worth exploring yeah yeah absolutely and you know I, I think one good uh, example so the Netflix series Godless was a Western that was really interesting because you know, the basic premise was that the mining town and almost all the men got killed in a mining disaster. So now women are in charge of running the town. So that's a big subversion mm-hmm. um, right there and very plausible and, and it works really well. But there was like an African-American community outside town, right. which seemed, that part never clicked for me uh, or it didn't seem very authentic. Like they didn't handle it quite. Yeah, they didn't quite handle yes. it. The context seemed all off because you know for a, t- a town African American community like that like often like Western Colorado wherever it was supposed to be set. Mm-hmm. So well, that that, uh, that element didn't didn't right. stand out. I mean that that yeah. made perfect that, sense to me like, as a as a factual thing. But yeah. anyway, that's not to do with yeah, the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so yeah, again, sort of like knowing your players, working with your players. Um, some players may want to just ignore this stuff entirely. And yeah. that may be the, what your you know table rules. Oh people yeah, and, and listen here, listen so. to that listen when you're dealing with problematic issues. Um, yeah. 
then yeah, pay attention. And talk about it. I mean, this right. is the sort of session zero stuff. You know, it yeah. doesn't have to be just in the session, but you know, as a game master, when it first starts to come up, sort of say like, we're heading there, how are people doing? You know, this is where we're going, mm -hmm. and uh, see if it works. You can usually so, tell. I mean, you can oh, usually yeah. tell if, if, there's oh, a couple, yeah. if there's a player at the table that's getting really unhappy, you know? Oh, um, yeah. You can usually. So are, are there any other, like, historical eras or, you know, I mean, I, I talk a lot about Westerns because that's where I do a lot of my research, but um, uh, has anybody had any interesting challenges in dealing with other sort of periods or anything like that? One thing I've, I've found really interesting lately, <clears throat> I mean, it's been interesting for a long time, but uh, but I've, uh, the, um, uh, 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 so one thing that, that, that I think this is valuable in terms of using the real world um, in a surprising way is looking at Norse mythology, Norse mm -hmm. history, right? So running stuff in the Viking Age. Um, the uh, what's interesting to me about that is the difference between what everybody tends to think about as Norse mythology, right? We all know the big giants. We all know Thor has a hammer and he fights monsters, and um, you know Odin lost his eye and is very wise, and and so on and so on and so on, um, and uh, and yeah, and there are trolls and there are elves and there are dwarves, right? And all of that stuff kind of fed into, um, fed into Tolkien and then through Tolkien fed into D&D. &D. So we're all really, really familiar with it. So when, as, but as you go back, go back and back and back in, in where all that came from, it was way less, it's way less static than that. And that means that there are plenty of elements that you can bring in in, in that historical era or in a setting that's, in, you know that's uh, uh, inspired by that historical era that surprise people. You know, the, I mean, the the the, the dwarves and, and the elves, for instance. You know, I mean, those were, you know, uh, they're they're sort of versions, more or less versions of kind of nature spirits, more mm -hmm. than they were considered. You know, and, and um, you know, dwarves are sort of the the, the, the dwarves were the, the, we got dwarf from 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 dark elf is what the original translation was because they lived underground and they were always doing stuff underground and they were kind of sneaky and and um, and uh, you know the uh, <clears throat> trolls and giants right. Yeah. The, the the word that the the, 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 the big word that everybody used for those is, is Jotun, which you can translate as giant, but you can translate it all kinds of ways. You know, what it ultimately meant was something big and supernatural and not human, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know, so the uh, so I'm, I'm writing a D and D adventure that's in a sort of fantasy Iron Age, you know, far north Germanic ish kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and the title of that is going to be The Fane of the Frost Giant, right? But the point of that is not that it's, you know, a frost giant like a 20-foot-tall muscular Viking dude with a horned helmet, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the, the frost giant in question is going to be something way weirder than that, right? Because it's this sort of, because I wanted to play off the fact that the, the idea behind a frost giant and their mythology and their beliefs before they considered it mythology was something to explain the horrors of a snowstorm, you know, mm -hmm. when you're living mm -hmm. in Norway mm -hmm. in the winter. Mm -hmm. uh, and well, and, and, and the, a lot of the scholarship now is actually 
focusing on the fact that most of the sagas that we've got mm -hmm. were actually written in the 12th century right. based on uh, based on I think it was 12th century mm -hmm. based on what uh, had orally been uh, translated up to them, but it was written by Christians, yeah, right, and for a Christian audience, right, right, and yeah. so. If you look into the sagas, you go, wait, they probably came out way different than they, right. they originally well, were. And then even really beyond that, we're talking about like Norse culture, which, you know, so that extends so from from Germany and, uh, and you know, through Scandinavia, mm -hmm. you know, through, in, through the north of England into Iceland, and the sagas were written over here. Mm -hmm. So even, so yes, they're written and, by and, Christian monks, they're written in the 12th century, and they're written way over here. Mm -hmm. So but we have what those was going because... over here over in the sixth or seventh century? Right, exactly. Right. And, yeah. and you know, uh, Scandinavian culture, Norse culture, went all the way down. You know, down into became Russia. Right, became right, Russia, right. Down to the black, down to the black and Caspian, into, like yeah. the the border of the uh, Byzantine Empire. Right. So right. That's not just one culture, and yet we've got this narrow saga thing that happens mm -hmm. in Iceland, and they think, oh, well, that was the, you yeah. know, it wasn't no. the whole thing. Right, because the textual resources are so, exactly. are so yeah. scant. Well, and, but and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of room for you as a GM right, right. In, in the gap. Oh, yeah, and if you take an interest in, in linguistics, you know, I mean, this is stuff you don't have to be an expert in, but you can just sort of dig around on Wikipedia and, and, and sort of trace the origin of terms and phrases. So Jotun, oh, yeah, yeah. for instance, yeah. you know, it's not Great. hard. It wasn't hard at all to, to, to sort of start picking apart. Um, there are a lot of places where it says Jotun, that means giant. But then you sort of start digging around and you find, no, it meant all kinds of things. Oh, and Wikipedia is wonderful for this. And yeah. just uh, uh, control T, uh, open new tabs, as opposed to closing windows right. so you can right, just right. Like, sort of keep through and you know, the, as long as you don't leave too many open. But you talk about the frost giants. So in the Thousand and One Nights, as I'm looking at this, ghouls, of course, mm -hmm. are a critical thing, but it's not the ghoul as we traditionally think mm -hmm. of in a lot of gaming is much more Lovecraftian mm -hmm. than it is as described in the Thousand and One Nights. And so within Thousand and One Nights you get, yeah, they live on the edge of town, they live in their burial grounds, but they're more tricksters mm -hmm. than anything else. And they're heavily identified with hyenas. So suddenly mm -hmm. Ghouls are sounding a lot more like gnolls than they are the ghouls we traditionally think about. Yeah, and I, that's I, the angle I'm, I'm going. Yeah, I t and, and and I took a different. I wrote a a different angle on ghouls and then a D and D adventure that I wrote that we'll be publishing in a few months. That's that's set in you know that's set in sort of a, a fictional fantasy you know mm -hmm. Arab desert area. Hmm. But um, but the uh, but so the player the, the characters, pardon me, might have an encounter with a with with a ghoul, but the the setup of it is you know ghouls as as kind of uh, 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 ghosts you know undead spirits mm. who refuse to go away and can occupy the dead and bring them you know bring them out again bring them back animate them bring them back again and so when the players have an have the encounter what they have an encounter with is this voice coming up out of a dried up well that they try to go to looking for water and this is you know and the voice is trying to convince them oh i've been stuck here i'm under a curse can you please help me um can somebody please just come down and free me i'm stuck you know things like that to play on their sympathies and try to you know and ultimately try to lure somebody down there so we can you know grab them and eat them yeah. um and uh and then if they and if they overcome you know if they if they sort of overcome the thing then um you know then uh then they can sort of uh, witness it sort of 
that destroyed this physical body and the spirit kind of flees in anger and anguish um, unless you do it in daytime and then it, you know it might emerge into the sun and be be uh, be, be burnt up and evaporated yeah. um, well we've been talking a lot about Japan and Japanese mm-hmm. you know history here and I think it's very really interesting to sort of look back through that and look about again a lot of the conventional wisdom because a lot of what we think about uh, as Japan is really Tokugawa or Japan, yeah. mm-hmm. Yakuza, ninja, geishas, things like that. I mean, the Bushido map in the Bushido role-playing game is a map of Tokugawa, Japan. Mm-hmm. And as you dig back through the Sengoku era, so when you get back to the Onu Wars featured in Rain, you know, a lot of the cities and towns, all the stuff that was founded in the uh, Tokugawa era or in the Unification era, all those things are not there. Mm-hmm. Or they have different names and you know, all that's looking there. And as you go further back into the Heian era, where a lot of the early stuff we think about as, Japan, as distinctly Japanese was being manifested, but it's that time the culture still was very Chinese. In fact, the castles I was talking about in northern Japan are like very Chinese-style castles mm-hmm. as opposed to what we think of as Japanese castles. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like looking and, and, uh, and working through those elements. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and that's more stuff that you, can, so. if you, that you can bring in that'll kind of exactly. surprise the players and right. keep them guessing and right. keep them in right. suspense. Well, or like, you know, the fact that I'm looking at these castles going like these castles are all like, you know, aligned north-south and the geoman- geomancy is like, I need to really, really look into what feng shui really means. Right. And like how that feeds in to the geomancy that was critically important back in that era. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how, uh, how much information is available from people of that culture that we never touch. Right. Uh, when yeah. researching Japan, I came across this guy, he's uh, Ken's Castles. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. all he does is he does, he does in English. Uh, his English is not perfect, but it's way better than my Japanese. Um, and he goes through and lists all these Japanese castles, and he gives the construction dates as best as he knows them. Right. And you go through and go, wait, wait a minute, that didn't get that wasn't built till the 1500s. Okay, don't need to worry about that one. Right. Um, and right. so you go through this whole list, and it's uh, and it's fascinating to see what's available in other cultures. I went through the Japan uh, Japan Wikipedia. Oh my! I went through Japan Wikipedia trying to use Google Translate to get the <laughs> stuff in. So I got like one of the one of the uh, uh, one of the provincial uh, uh, shugo. His name translated into hexagon politician. <laughs> I'm thinking there was something got shifted there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but I was able to track down all the all the uh, provincial uh, lords for all of the uh, like all the shugo for all of the provinces from that period. Could not find this in English. Could not. Right. But by tracking down and then opening many tabs of uh, both. Our uh, English Wikipedia and Japan Wiki, uh, Wikipedia translating and trying to find uh, like going to, through deep deep Google uh, rabbit holes to see if I can find something that that could correlate so I could get a better idea of uh, like a better translation. Eventually came up with a list of the the shugo. Mm-hmm. Took a while, but it came up with a list, well, and, and it's all available in J- if you can read Jap- uh, Japanese. <laughs> well, see, and that's actually you talk about like one of the the big sort of unknowns. There's all the history. That the, what we know is so much of that, but that's conventionally in English, and some of, some of it's based on, you know, not good stuff. And it's the classic historical thing. You're going like, oh, well, I've heard this description. As you read it, it's like because it's basically what you've seen is like the six people repeating the same story. Oh right. yeah, right, exactly. And there are other stories that are out there, right. um, you know, as well as going that, but let alone the ones that aren't in English. 
And there's an amazing number of topics where you just hit a wall and you're going like, surely this must exist. And you go to Japan Wikipedia and the page is this long. Oh, exactly. In English, the page is this long. And that, so, that yeah. exactly ran yeah. into that. Um, and the uh, and the links that they have, they have links to events that you don't even talk about in English. Right. Um, the, uh, well, the Omen War in particular, you ask anybody in English what started the Omen War. Well, it was a, uh, it was a succession dispute uh, uh, between who was going to become the next shogun, whether uh, it's going to be uh, uh, Ashikaga Yoshimasa's uh, son or his brother. That's it's in Encyclopedia Britannica. Even says that that's not right. Mm -hmm. uh, that actually came that became the excuse a year later. It was actually a another succession dispute between another uh, family, Hadakayama. Uh, and that's what actually triggered the whole war. And really, when you get into it, it was a power struggle between these two, these two rival factions, and they basically used it all as an excuse to fight each other. Mm -hmm. right. and, and, and discovering that gives you, oh, if that's, that's your setting, that's exactly. a terrific hook. That's, that's because exactly. it's not just, that's it's not this really weird lopsided, one person, one side is totally in the right, one side's right. totally in the right. wrong. You can have the, your players at the pivot point between right. there. Well, I knew, there well was a, I knew there was an issue when, when Yoshimasa's uh, brother was on one side, help, uh, on the side of uh, the Shogun and, uh, and the Hosokawa, and then he ends up going over to the other side, of the Yamato. Uh, the uh, and I'm like, uh, wait a minute, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> Something right. weird, and that's when the whole political thing started to, to open up. Exactly, well, and similarly, you know, as I like, really was digging into this you know, northern Japan, Japan situation, in the Heian era, as you're looking and feeling, so why did Yoshitsune, after he was the big winner at the, at, at the, uh, the Battle of uh, Danumara, and, uh, but then as his brother became the, the first of the Kamakura sh shoguns, he fell out with him, and he starts fleeing north. Well, he fleed north because the northern Fujiwara were allied with the Amishi up there, and it really was kind of another country, or it was only it had just recently become Japan. Up there, so there was a chance for him to actually, you know, perhaps he found political safety up there for a while um, before uh, he was eventually uh, caught and killed by his brother's allies, and that was just a totally different spin of Japanese mm -hmm. history. There's, uh, there's a point. Yeah, there's a point where in Japan there were two emperors because of a really stupid plan where, uh, where the one emperor said, "Well, tell you what, I've got two sons, so one's going to reign for two, uh, for twenty years." Then. The other one will reign for twenty, and we'll split the two sides. They'll they'll bop back and forth. They'll, they'll, well, that they'll, way, they'll, that worked as well yeah, as you. Yeah, they'll, they'll work together. One time they switched. The other one said, "I don't think yeah, we're going to give us right, back." Yeah, right. no, no. Uh, but that was all reconciled, uh, reconciled by the by the uh, uh, well before the Ono War. But there were still people for the other uh, the other faction. By the there's still people that say that the current emperor is the wrong emperor. <laughs> but but uh, there were still factions running around. By the, in the owner war, um, and they were always every now and again popped up and did something stupid like tried to steal the the regalia, uh, the imperial regalia. That's a great plot point for for, for role playing. Mm -hmm. You've got this whole faction doing this thing, trying to get the other emperor, emperor place. Yeah, well, yeah. We're, we're we're way over, so we ought to wrap up. But, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so. I guess I'll, I'll just uh, my last thing is is if you're interested in running stuff in history, don't feel necessarily obliged to do the kinds of crazy research that some of us love to do. Um, you know, I'd be doing this kind of thing in my spare time even if I wasn't trying to bring it to a table or, or write about it. Um, 
you know, you can, if you're interested in sort of evoking uh, history or setting a game in real world history, you don't, you know, you can do some really shallow digging and get tons of awesome details uh, to create stories that'll, that'll, uh, that'll be compelling to your, um, to your players. So don't, don't be afraid to break history. Don't sure. be afraid oh, yeah. to make a mistake or deliberately change the alter the path. Yeah, let, yeah. The, let the players have have that power if they yeah. if they try to exercise it. Like if they, you know, to use the classic example, if they want to kill Hitler when he's a baby, mm-hmm. let him um, and see where it goes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. The uh, and as another resource, just conveniently, uh, last week um, on Ken Robin talking about stuff, they were talking about low tech settings, which drifted into historical settings. Uh, very quickly, so they had a really interesting discussion about uh, that covered a lot of what we've talked about how to you know to enroll your players in mm-hmm. you know, so they can see the opportunities. That's, of what, the, that's of their what podcast. Can and Robin pod, talk about podcast, stuff? Can Robin talk about stuff? Yeah. And that's just last week. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Hadn't heard that one yet. I'll be listening to it on the way home. There you go. All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Thank I you. Hope, Thank this was, hope this was useful. Yeah. 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 All right. Thank you. Good work. Yeah, that was yeah. fun. Yeah. This episode of Art Dream Presents was recorded live at ChupacabraCon in spring of 2019 in Round Rock, Texas. This episode's music is Narlathotep by Darkest of the Hillside Thickets, courtesy Divine Industries, copyright 2019. Visit www.thickets.net. If you like Art Dream Presents videos and podcasts, you can get a week's early access at patreon.com slash Shane Ivey.